Morning, guys. And here we are today with um, XR, Investment Associate, uh, Blockchain Founders Fund. Uh, good to have you with us. How are you? Thanks, Lauren. Thanks for having me. I'm good. Today is a good day. It's a start, good start to the week and uh, excited to be here. What, what part of the world are you in at the moment? Uh, I'm actually in Singapore right now. Uh, we're going to move around a little bit towards November period, but uh, we just ended token 2049 here in Singapore. So then the team's just kind of taking it slow for a little bit, settle in one spot and uh, get some things going. And, and you guys are Blockchain Founders Fund. Um, I think it's fair to say that you guys have been super busy. Um, what, what, what is it that you guys are really focused on right now? You know, what, What's your mission? Where are you looking at opportunity? Yeah. Where do you see the chances within the market? Mm -hmm. So Blockchain Founders Fund actually started back in 2018. And uh, I don't think our, our sort of our mission and our focus has changed all that much. Um, so, you know, for us, we're really focusing on adding value to the Web3 and blockchain ecosystems. Uh, we want to look for projects that have real world impact, real world applications, um, and uh, want to develop and implement innovative solutions. Right. So, so that's sort of the kind of projects we're looking for that have impact, not just on the blockchain and within blockchain, but they're going to impact the society and, and, and the Web2 space as well at home. Um, so for us, you know, the, the, the model that we've kind of looked for and developed over the past few years, you know, it enables us to invest and grow at a very early stage, all the different Web3 and blockchain companies that we're interested in. Right. And, and the way we sort of help them grow, we have built networks and relationships over the past few years. So we're able to form strategic partnerships. We're able to offer, you know, the full spectrum of services that any startup, you know, regardless of their vertical within the Web3 space are going to need, right? And, and for us, I think once we invest, um, something that might be slightly different from, from, you know, some other VCs out there is that we take a very personalized approach with our founders, right? We work very closely alongside them for at least the first six months across you know tech finance marketing ops um, amongst you know the full spectrum of services right and, and and thereafter we sort of continue you know after the six months and and sort of the reason why we choose six months is because in the web3 space and especially at a very early stage it's very hard to say beyond six months what's going to happen right so for sort of all intents and purposes on the first onboarding call we look at the first six months what we want to achieve what are the milestones we want to hit and thereafter, we sort of do another check to see where we can continue providing support as and when needed, you know, whether in terms of fundraising, you know, where, for example, we helped one of our companies grid, uh, we helped bring on more than 90% of the investors on the cap table. We came in very early on the grid, and now they're raising at a, at a uh, seed, seed stage, right? And, and as of now, 90% of the investors on the cap table, we've helped her to sort of make those connections. Um, you know, we help people, we help founders develop their white papers, and help them build sustainable tokenomics where we're trying to build a token system where business metrics flourish alongside tokens. You know, obviously because the Web3 space is still quite nascent, not many people understand that the tokenomics have to move hand in hand with the overall business. So that's something sort of something that we're focusing a lot on at the moment. Um, and obviously, you know, we want to grow with our founders and be alongside them for the entire journey from pre-seed, even ideation stage, you know, pre-pre-seed, all the way up to the IPO level. And how do you actually decide? Because when we first started out, you know, we contacted a lot of um, accelerator, incubator programs, to just more to learn than anything, which I think is beneficial to, to any to anyone starting out there with their stuck with their company but how do you 
evaluate a company and a team at such an early stage? How do you know which companies to invest in and, and what are you really looking for? I think that's a great question, right? So, you know, at early stage, you don't have metrics where, you know, other PE firms or other later stage funds might look at such as revenue attraction. You don't really have those to, to sort of make a quantitative um, analysis of how good the company is or how good they're going to be, right? Due diligence is that much harder to do and conduct at such an early stage, right? For us at, at our fund, we, we're averaging about 600 companies a month, um, but still we only invest in about three or four of them each month and sometimes even two, two companies a month, right? That, that's at an average of about 0.66% hit rate, right? So, so we do sort of go through a very stringent process of, of due diligence and, and choosing which companies we want to make an investment in, right? So, so maybe if I can just walk through the steps in which we decide whether, you know, this is a company we want to invest in, right? I'll start from the very first step, which is sourcing. How do we get to 600 companies a month, right? So every quarter, the entire investment team, along with the research team, we, we sort of have an all-hands meeting where we sort of review all the theses and all the sub-theses that, that, that we have currently, where we focus our, our sourcing, right? So we, we sort of basically... At, at, each of these all-hand meetings, we want to see if the needle has changed sufficiently enough, you know, for us to, you know, maybe rethink some of the pieces that we're looking at, rethink some of the areas that we want to focus on. Um, and then this essentially is going to guide the, the main areas of focus while sourcing for the next month, right? And then essentially, you know, we go out, we, 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 we reach out to communities, to founders, we join forums, we join AMAs. We do what it takes to, to get exposed to ourselves as much as possible to each of these communities, right? And then once we have these companies within our database, they fill up a form. Um, we then take the information that they provide and we go through a very extensive process, right? So we rate founders, business model, the need and the relevance of the product, obviously amongst other things. And essentially what then happens is, you know, and obviously between this and, and the next step, there are going to be a few calls between the founder and, and, and the investment team or, or rather the analyst specifically who's, who's uh, preparing that, that piece of investment. Um, and then the analyst, then, then you know, they, they do up a brief that we bring up to the investment team. And then, and then this is where it gets a little bit fun, right? I, honestly, this is my favorite part of the process where essentially we dissect and we challenge every aspect of, of, of the, the analyst's investment brief. You know, if he's saying, you know, this is the market size, we're going to ask, you know, did you confirm that? Like, how did you arrive that number? If, if they had to go through a process of, process of extrapolating that information, obviously because Web3 space is very nascent, you're going to have a lot of industries that aren't necessarily mature enough for you to form an opinion quantitatively about what that market size is going to be two years, three years, five years down the road. That, that's sort of one example of how we challenge each other on these investment calls, right? And, you know, sort of once the whole group has had a chance, had a go at the investment brief, um, and then likely there's gonna be a follow-up call with the founders sort of as a last step, just to, just to get any other last questions and last answers in. And then, you know, we, we come to a decision as to whether we wanna proceed, right? So, so we do sort of work quite closely with the founder, even at a DD step, because there's only so much research and so much DD you can do uh, through secondary research, right? So a lot of times we want to get on a call with the founders just to gauge as well how they answer your questions, whether they have whether they have the ability to answer the questions on the spot on the go, right? So I mean, this process can be very extensive. What sort of question? Um, and, sorry. 
what, what sort of questions might you throw at them? Like, yeah. So I, I think a lot of times, you know, a very good gauge of, of how well the founder knows his business and the overall landscape is we want to ask very high level questions. You know, where do you think your product is going to be two years down the road? Do you see the go-to-market of, uh, of your business model changing? Do you see the business model pivoting, you know, in case this happens, for example, right? So we want to ask questions where we can gauge if the founder has a good enough understanding of their industry as a whole. And, and because obviously, you know, the industry is so new, there are going to be a lot of changes to come, right? So even at a very early stage, even at a pre-product stage, pre-product market fit stage, we want to see that the founder has an ability to absorb information and then obviously to reiterate their product as and when needed. You know, so, so that's just sort of one example of question we, we do, right? So, I mean, our DD process is very extensive, very comprehensive, but even then, you know, typically our first check size is relatively small, right? We make a, a relatively small check into the company first. And then once we've onboarded them, you know, we work very, very closely with them for like six months, sometimes maybe less, you know, they might raise a subsequent round three months, four months down the road. And obviously after having worked with them and seeing how they work as a team, understanding the founders a little bit better, you know, having on being on weekly calls with them for the past three months, we have a better, much better understanding because now it's primary research, right? You, you get to see firsthand how the founder works, how, how they adapt to issues or obstacles along the way. Then we double down and we make a much larger follow-on investment. Right. So I think so that this model affords us the ability to be able to make a relatively less risky bet in that sense, because we're coming, you know, a little bit smaller on the first check size. And then, you know, once we have had the opportunity to work a lot closer with the founders and understanding, you know, how well they've been able to meet their milestones, how well they've been able to keep to their roadmap, then we double down. And, and how, how long is it typically before you make your first initial investment? And you expect a company to be generating revenue? So, so there are two parts to that question, right? So I'm assuming here we're asking from the very first contact with the founder to the time we make the first investment and then to, to the next point in which they generate revenue, right? So I'll answer that in two parts. Um, from the very first time we speak to the founder to the time we sign documents and send funds and basically make an investment, that can vary. Right, because sometimes you have founders who are, you know, there are a lot of crypto events happening. They might be, you know, sort of uh, indisposed for, for a while. That, 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 that's sort of, how do I say that, uh, uh, one-off kind of things where, where they don't necessarily have the ability to get back to you on time. But uh, we have been able to move fast before where, you know, founders are very responsive. Um, they're, they're, they're very much focused on fundraising. You have some founders where, you know, they're fundraising alongside building at the same time. So they might not be as responsive. Uh, but we have done deals, you know, as quick as in two days, where obviously we have a good gauge on the industry already with um, the, you know, we've done similar deals maybe in the past, or we've done sufficient research into the industry where we say, okay, you know, this is a solid product you know, based on what we've seen of the, of the other competitors. And, you know, we want to make a fast, we want to move fast and we want to make an investment straight away, right? So you can take as fast as a day or two days. That's how fast we can, we can move, insane. right? That's insane. You know, I, 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 oh, yeah, I mean, I mean, it is very hard to, to imagine that, that, you know, you're making a first investment in, in 24, 48 hours. But I think on our end, obviously, because if we've done sufficient research into the industry, we know who are the current players out there. That when we see a product 
we can recognize that you know it's way ahead of all the other competitors out there you know the founders are strong the business model that they have is solid the ability to generate revenue and the ability to build a community is very strong in the founding team then you know we, we to, to us it's like why not sure right so if you have the confidence right so, so these are these aren't like rushed decisions if you're doing it in such a short no definitely time. not okay it, it's a lot of times it's it's more about you know the ability to go through the contracts go through the agreements and uh, that, that can take up some time. But again, for us, we use a very standard YCOM uh, safe that we typically use for, for, for our investments. And so that moves things along a lot quicker, right? And obviously being regulated in Singapore by the MAS, we're able to move with that speed because we, we do have certain regulations in place that allow us to um, you know, give confidence in, in, on the founder's side with their lawyers. You know, when they receive our documents, they're sure that you know, this is not a... Like, uh, you know, maybe if you were incorporating the BVI or the Cayman, there might be a few questions here and there. But, you know, if you're regulated by one of the most strictest governments in the world, if I can say, then, you know, it sort of speeds things up a little, speeds things up a little bit. I'm with you. Right. And uh, I think for the next question, you know, the second part of your question with regards to revenue, I think revenue is, is one case where it's just one metric for us to look at, right? Not necessarily all the time we're going to look at revenue. You do have some companies where it might not make sense for them to look at revenue from the very beginning, where, you know, if it's, uh, for example, you're looking at building a community instead, right? You're providing a freemium service. You want to build up a community, create stickiness within the community, build up your user base. And when you hit that critical mass, that's when you start charging uh, subscription fees, right? So, so for some companies, it might not make sense to look at revenue first. It might make more sense for them to understand, you know, what are the milestones that they want to hit in terms of traction? You know, how many community, how many users do you want to have who are active, daily active users within your product, right? And then obviously for some others, you're going to look at revenue. How quickly can they generate revenue from the products that they're developing, right? So I, I, it's very hard for me to give you a number from that perspective because, you know, one, you're looking at different metrics that you want to look at when you first make an investment. And then secondly, every company are in varying stages, right? Because we come in at such an early stage at a pre-seed or seed. Obviously, if you're in a seed stage, you're expected to have a little bit more traction, a little bit more progress down the roadmap. So then you obviously be expected to generate either revenue or hit certain milestones in the community a little bit earlier than say someone who's in a similar industry, but at a pre-seed stage, right? Where they may not necessarily have done uh, even an MVP, for example, you know, where all they have is really much an idea and they've tried to assemble a team and, and that's all they have right now, right? So I'd say it's, 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 uh, it's, it varies, basically. And in terms of like the founders, you know, again, investing so early on, is there a similarity? Like the founders that, the founders that you invest in, are they coming from a financial services background? Are they coming from a tech background? Have they got previous success in building startups and in terms mm -hmm. of personality traits how, yeah you know you're, you're putting <laughs> even writing the smallest checks is still a lot of money of course of course i agree i think then that's a very interesting question right because i think the last sort of factor you mentioned was personality traits and that's i think something that you know a lot of funds and a lot of vcs may not necessarily look out for right i think increasingly we're seeing more and more and again, I'm sort of reverting back to my uh, previous experience as a management consultant in the people space. You know, a lot of corporates and, and sort of, let's say, uh, the corporate world in general, right? They, they don't necessarily place as much emphasis on the people and the talent side 
uh, as much as they should, right? If, we, if we've done research, we've seen reports where, um, you know, the, the impact of how much people and, and talent can have, that's not commensurate with the number of investments or amount of investments that are going into people talent, right? I'm sort of diverting a little bit, but my point here is that we, we are as a fund starting to look a little bit more at personality traits, the softer skills of founders and the ability um, outside of the technical expertise and the technical experience, stuff that you find on a resume, right? Which is why, again, I want to go back to the point about us being a lot on calls with founders, right? It's very, very, very rare. I'd say we've never actually done investment where we haven't got on multiple calls across multiple team members of the team with the founder, right? Mm -hmm. We want, it's a little bit like an interview, right? Where you, you not just want to have one interview about technical expertise, but you also want to have a separate interview on cultural fit. I think that's becoming more and more prevalent in the markets today where, you know, we want to make sure there is a very, very strong fit in terms of culture and personality within the team. Same for our founders, right? Because we work so closely with them. We want to see that our founders are, for lack of a better word, I say coachable in that sense, right? Because a lot of times founders come to us, you know, they may have zero experience founding companies in the Web2 space, but you know, they might not be the most adept at, at navigating the Web3 space, right? And that's where our expertise comes in. But if a founder is very adamant about the way they believe things should go, then, then it's very hard for us to come in and, and, and sort of guide them along on what can and needs to be done. That being said, obviously, we don't take a prescriptive approach. Obviously, we take a more collaborative approach. But again, you know, on, on these calls, you can sort of determine and, and mind you, we have like, few hundred calls a month. Um, so, so we do sort of are able to see at a very quick stage, like within 10 minutes, 15 minutes or so, speaking to the founder, you'd be able to gauge whether or not this is a guy that you know, you'd want to work with across six months intensely, right? Because you know, if, if you want to make some suggestions and the founder is very defensive or is very adamant about the way that he believes is the right way, then it's very hard to form, to form a collaborative relationship from that point on. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, so I, I, lo I love that you brought up the point about personality because I think that's definitely something that we're focusing a little bit more on, especially, you know, with our model that, you know, we have to work very closely with founders. That definitely is something that, that, we're, that we're, I'd say, putting a little bit more weight on than, than a, a, a traditional VC might. Right. But then obviously across other aspects of a founder, we, all, we do also have, you know, a lot of zero founders within, within our portfolio, because obviously that's a very good indication that, you know, this guy has been there, done that. Um, for example, one of the investments that we recently made called Skirmish, they are a, a platform which allows people, users, players basically to earn cash across any, any of the games that they're currently playing, right? So, so here we're not really looking at a play to earn sort of game five space, but we're looking at existing games that people are already spending, you know, four or five hours a day on like FIFA, Dota, League of Legends, and, and basically what Skirmish does is it allows people to, to earn cash while playing these games, right? And, and the co-founder for Skirmish is, is Luke. He co-founded a German unicorn called Hello, called Hello Fresh, which is huge in, in Germany, in Europe, and in the UK yeah. and in the US as well. You've heard of it, yeah? Yeah, um, of so, so he scaled up a billion-dollar company, you know, and, and obviously someone who's been there, done that, you know, you have the confidence that he out of everyone else might be able to replicate that success again, right? So, you know, these are sort of the couple of things that we look for 
when we are looking to make an investment, right? The founders play a very, very critical role because, you know, you can know quite a bit about a founder before you make an initial investment, but there's only so much you can know about the other side of the business around the revenue, the metrics, the, the community, the traction stuff. And when do you know whether or not a startup is going to be successful or when you think that actually it's going to fail? Yeah, I think, again, it, it kind of leads me back to my earlier point around um, people and talent, right? And, and I, I might be a little biased in saying this, but um, for me, you know, because once you work with a company, uh, once you work with a founder, actually, more specifically, you get the sense of whether, you know, he's able to retain and attract the talent that he needs, right? A lot of times as a founder, obviously you're invested in the company, right? You have your, your equity stake and, and that more, more often than not is easily justifiable for the amount of hours you put in, right? You work 70, 80 hour weeks, but how are you going to expect someone who comes in maybe sometimes on an ESOP, maybe sometimes on a salary? How do you convince a person like that to believe in the same mission and vision as you do and to put in you know, as much soul and passion as you do as a founder in, in your business? Right. So I think for us, one of the key reasons that makes that makes us believe that a startup would be successful is, you know, through the six months of working with them, whether or not personal issues come up, that's very, very key for us. Right. If you're going to have people who are, you know, coming for two months and leaving, it brings a lot of disruption. A lot of times we see founding teams um, that have also C-suite teams that are not necessarily co-founders. Right. And then, you know, mm. for example, if, if a CTO comes in, uh, they might demand, you know, a higher salary and stuff like that. But you don't have the cash. Right. How are you going to how are you going to bring a CTO from Google, for example, and convince him that what you're building is the next unicorn, but you can't pay him the salary. You can't match the salary that Google can, uh, has been paying him. And obviously you can't. Right. Because at a pre-CT stage, oh. you're struggling to raise the cash. You can't convince to keep them. the lights on. That, that's what exactly. So. so so we do want to see founders that have that, that um, conviction in themselves that they're able to convince others to believe in the same vision that they have, right? So, you know, sometimes we see startups within our portfolio where, you know, sometimes you might have the CTO asking for a higher salary. You might have the CTO saying, you know, they might want to leave unless they raise a subsequent round. Things like that do happen, right? And, and for us, it's not a very strong indication that these guys have what it takes to make it to the next level. Because again, when you're not able to convince such a key figure in your, in your, in your company, especially one that's, I mean, if you're operating in a Web3 space, tech is going to be, the technology is going to be a very key aspect of your, of your entire business model, right? If you can't convince the chief guy who's building the tech, maintaining the tech, upkeeping the tech to stay on, that's going to be a huge issue for us, right? It's not necessarily the, the, the check mark that, that, that gives shareholders confidence that you're going to raise subsequent rounds and go on to race series A, B, C, right? So for us, I think, well, rather for me personally, I have a bias to this, right? Where I, I want to see founders where they're able to attract the correct talent, but more so than that, retain the talent that they need to scale up the company, right? And then from just, just to add on a little, little bit more is that, at the pre-CT stage, you're going to have teams where, which are relatively small, you know, maybe between five to 10 people, you're building an MVP, you don't necessarily need a huge team, right? But once you go live, you know, you're going to build more sales, you're going to do more marketing, you're going to um, 
improve your, your tech, improve your product, you're going to scale to a team where it's 30, 40, 50 people, right? And the skill sets that a founder needs or rather the executive team needs is going to be very different when you're managing just five people compared to 50, right? So again, the ability of the, of the, of the founder to be agile in that sense, to be able to adapt and, and to, you know, change his skill sets and his toolkits to, to be able to manage the company from moving from a pre-seed stage all the way up to a series A, series B and IPO stage, that's critical for us as well. So when I first started out, um, Emma and I, we spoke with like 2000 developers uh, over the course of a year, like not particularly long calls for most of them. Some were like hour long, uh, hour or two hour long, but most were pretty quick. And all the, all the developers we spoke with were pretty much working at big tech companies or they'd worked at big tech exactly. companies. And what we found was a really common theme where they were kind of unhappy in their jobs and they wanted to go and work in small, at smaller companies where they felt that they would have like more say, more creativity. And more autonomy. Yeah, yeah. There was one guy at Amazon uh, specifically and um, he was earning at the time... 1500 like pounds i think pounds a day yeah 1500 pounds a day. and he was he was like and i told him what we were doing i spoke about what we were building he was like look pay me 400 a day and i'll come and work with you and when you're starting out you know 400 pounds a day might as well be 4 million pounds a day but <laughs> I, I, I completely i completely agree with you and i think that it largely comes down to the way in which the leadership is able to inspire and communicate their mission. And I think that if exactly. you communicate your mission, like clearly concisely and actually stick to your core principles, um, you retain, you do retain talent. I I've got to say that, you know, we've been very, very, or I should say, I've been very, very fortunate in just the level of trust that, the you know, my team have shown me and have shown Jan and Tarek and Emma, like, you know, there's been, real like unity there but um the world is changing especially for the vc world there's obviously huge excitement around the pre-seed and seed stage now um which makes sense given the fact that i think bigger more established companies have had it easy for so long right um but how, how does a company like blockchain founders fund navigate through the current climate yeah no, I think that's a good question. Again, I think the current climate isn't necessarily optimal from that perspective. I think that's putting it lightly. You know, we might live essentially in the Web3 space day in, day out, but we still have rent to pay. We still have groceries to buy, you know. I think, I think that being said, um, for us, we, 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 are, we are a company that values resilience a lot, right? And we want sort of our team, not just our team, but our founders as well, to be able to believe in the Web3 space so much so that, you know, even if we're in a bear market for the next, you know, additional year, additional two years, that they believe in, in what they're building and they continue to build because of the passion and the conviction, right? I think for us, for Blockchain Founders Fund, and obviously for most, most of the VCs, I, I, I think in the Web3 space, um, the current climate is good for two things. Right? I think the first one is that um, it weeds out a lot of, founders who were in it just to make a quick buck. I think, you know, when, when, when we were in a bull market, you had a lot of, especially in the GameFi space, I'm not sure why that's the case, but uh, you had a lot of projects trying to build games and uh, they were raising at, at 
I'd say sort of valuations that are were inflated as you know to say the least. Um, a lot of times, you see founders with an idea, only an idea. They didn't have a a game dev team. They didn't have a playable demo. They didn't have any community. And these guys were asking for valuations like thirty to fifty million, right? Which was insane. And what was the crazier part was that they managed to raise money. <laughs> they managed to raise capital. We got a seven million valuation off of like our idea. Oh, sorry, for our idea. We had our, we had the first version of Rayon and we had 2,000 users and we got 7 million, we had no idea how we were going to make money. We didn't know exactly what our go-to-market strategy was, um, but we already got a 7 million valuation. No, but, but I'd say that's fair because, you know, 7,000 users, uh, sorry, 2,000 users, you said, that, that is something, there, there is demand in the market for a product like Rayon. Right. And, and 7 million, I'd say it's a fair valuation for some, something at a pre-seed stage where you don't necessarily have a fully built up product. Right. But these guys didn't even have traction and they were raising at five, six, seven times what you just told me. Right. And the crazy part was people were investing in these guys. That, that's to me, like looking back now, I think obviously hindsight is 2020, but um, just, just being in that spot, that was crazy. Like the exuberance of the bull market was insane. Right. And, and then I think, so back to my point, I, I think that the sort of the climate right now, the, the, bam, the bearish climate is that a lot of these founders that were in it just to make a quick buck and, and raise quick capital from that perspective are more or less gone, right? Because you, you have funds and investors that are a lot more conservative, they're a lot more prudent right now, where, you know, they're, they're, and it's very unlikely that they're going to raise in just an idea at a 50 million valuation. Right. And, and which leads me to my second point is the other second thing that would be good for this climate is that valuations have come down to a lot more reasonable um, numbers. Right. We've seen a company raise at, you know, hundreds of hundred million is, uh, what is nine digit valuations. Um, they didn't, they had an MVP, but still they were raising at nine digit valuations and they came down after the bear market because we were still in contact with them they came down to a seven-digit valuation. That's a more than 10x decrease in their valuation, right? And they were essentially at the same stage. The only thing that changed was the market, right? And, and that was just crazy to see that they had the confidence to go out and raise at a nine-digit valuation when realistically they should have been raising at a seven, right? So I think the other good thing is that valuations and, and sort of maybe the exuberance have, have, has uh, sort of left the, the markets and 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 in its place, a lot more realism and a lot more reason um, in terms of valuations from both the founders and from the, the VC side as well. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. Um, but I, I guess that's the world, right? The, the, the VC world is kind of, there is an element of like finger in the air and just kind of like you can, if you have the confidence and belief in your products, you know, people will invest, people will pay what, what they think it's worth. Um but exactly. It, it, it's it's obviously you know there's there's so much opportunity right now, um, especially for companies like Blockchain Founders Fund. Um, we're seeing more and more applications um, and use cases for uh, blockchain, which goes way beyond just crypto. Um, although that's still predominantly the area. Um, what's the future look like for you guys? 
I'd say the future is looking good. I mean, obviously, right now, short-term future isn't necessarily great. I think a lot of people are predicting the bear markets to be here for a while. But uh, I mean, for us, I think it'd be good from the sense of, um, you know, as cliche as it might sound, the bear market is for building. Yeah. Right. We're, we're very keen to see sort of the novel and innovative products that come out of this bear market where, you know, people are not necessarily using the blockchain to replicate what is in Web2 and make it safer or make it more scalable just using blockchain technology, distributed, distributed ledger technology. But we want to see sort of new and innovative ideas come out that are only possible with the blockchain, right? So for us, I'd say, you know, we're looking forward to a little bit of that. On the fund side, you know, we're closing out our second fund, uh, finishing the capital raise for our own, own fund, you know, in the coming weeks. Um, and then, you know, obviously once we finish deploying that capital, we're going to look, look to raise a third fund where, you know, it's going to be larger than this current fund, which is 75 million. Um, the third fund will then essentially, you know, sort of look at, make full-on investments into a lot of companies that are within our portfolio currently, but also obviously look to make investments and deploy capital into companies that I mentioned, you know, that are building really cool, novel ideas, novel projects and products on the Web3 space. Um, but uh, yeah, I'd say the Web3 space is, is a good space to be in right now. It is. And I have to say that we actually have a last estimates, I think it was over 2,000, 2,500 uh, founders on the Realm platform, all looking to build in the Web3 space, um, largely uh, within within blockchain. So yeah, it, it's interesting seeing some of the projects that are coming out of there. But XR, it's been great to have you today. Um, XR Investment Associate at Blockchain Founders Fund. Uh, good to have you and thank you. No, thanks, Lawrence. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure speaking with you.